Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. I hope everyone is doing well. As a professor I once had would say, I have no questions, qualms, or concerns at present date. Unless we're talking about true crime, to which I always have so many questions, qualms and, concer- qualms and concerns, or, you know, seasonal allergies. All the beef. I've got mad beef. But hey, spring is springing. She has sprung. Yes. Love it. No complaints on that. So... Anywho, I would like to thank you for continuing to spread the word about the podcast. I mean, we're really growing our listenership. I'm so happy. Please continue to tell people word of mouth is how we get this thing going. I really do appreciate your helping grow our listenership so much. Oh my goodness. With that being said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Blue Springs, and Raytown, Missouri, welcome. Oklahoma City, Claremore, Tulsa, Yukon, and Edmond, Oklahoma, how do you do? Birmingham, Mobile, Bessemer, Huntsville, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama, welcome back. New Orleans, Lake Charles, Benton, Monroe, and Shreveport, Louisiana, hey. Winfield, Branchland, Martinsburg, Charleston, and Morgantown, West Virginia. How's it going? El Dorado, Ola, Pocahontas, Bentonville, and Little Rock, Arkansas. How's it going out there? Guadalupe, Colombia, Nigeria, Vietnam, Paraguay, and Romania. Thank you all for lending me your ears. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group. And follow all of the social accounts that can be found below in the description box, along with my references per the usual. So, <laughs> in the last episode, I discussed two separate serial rapists slash killers whose lives and actions mirrored one another in Ronald Gray in North Carolina and Reynaldo Rivera in South Carolina. Today's episode... I'll be discussing what had happened to three Girl Scouts at Camp Scott in 1977. So much dumpster juice. So much of it. 
Okay, here we go. Camp Scott was located. Yes, I said was. Camp Scott was located in Mays County, Oklahoma. Forest land surrounding the county made for the perfect location for the Girl Scouts to begin using in 1928. The campgrounds were two miles away from the town of Locust Grove and 50 from Tulsa, where the Girl Scouts of Eastern Oklahoma headquartered offices are located. For 49 years, scores of Girl Scouts spent their summers on 400 acres of land in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains, learning, bonding, and having fun. Most of the counselors had been campers themselves in the forest of Camp Scott. Less than two months before the 1977 summer was to begin, the counselors were bussed out to the campsite for on-site training. While at the training, one of the camp counselors reported that her belongings in her tent had been rummaged through and ransacked. Whomever the trash panda was, they found the counselor's box of donuts and ate them all. When the counselor found the donut box, she found that the person who stole her pastries had left a handwritten note in all caps stating that, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in one tent. When the counselor repo- reported the incident, the camp director, it was to the camp director, it was shrugged off as a sick joke. Hmm. On Sunday, June 12th, 1977, approximately 130 Girl Scouts and their families rallied outside the Tulsa Girl Scout headquarters, ready to go off to camp. In 1977, Michelle Hoffman was 15 years old. She'd aged out as a camper that summer and was about to embark on her first year as a camp counselor. Michelle knew all too well how overwhelming and scary leaving for camp could be for the first time. Michelle said, quote, My first year at Camp Scott, I remember going, whoa, because it is so dark, like dark, dark in those woods at night. If you've never been camping in a platform tent in the deep woods, it is a little intimidating. After your first time there, you get it. You're just prepared. It's going to be dark. As she looked at the faces of the campers with their families, she spotted 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner, a shy African-American girl who was embarking on her first camping trip. Denise was only one of a few African-American Girl Scouts attending Camp Scott. Originally, two of her friends were supposed to attend the camp with her, but they backed out before the trip. Michelle walked up to Denise and her mother, reassuring the girl and mother that Denise would be fine. The girls said their goodbyes to their families and loaded up on the buses. Denise cried as she waved goodbye to her mother. After an hour, the busloads of campers entered the front gates of Camp Scott and onto Cookie Drive. Now... There's a map. It's totally going to be included with all of the imagery, but you know me, I'm a little bit extra. I've got to describe it for you as well. Please allow me to take a sip off of my coffee. 
<clears throat> Fun fact, I used to work for the airlines. I was not a flight attendant, but I'm about to give you that kind of vibe. <clears throat> to the left stood campsites referred to as units, Osage, Chickasaw, Creek, Seminole, Red Barn, and Cedar. Below and to the right, Arapahoe and Choctaw. Further down and to the right, Quapwa, Ki uh, Kiowa on the outer edge of the camp, Comanche and Cherokee. Between Choctaw and Cherokee stood the Staff House, Ranger House, Health Center, Director's Office, Dining Facilities, Bathrooms, and Pools. There were 27 campers assigned to the Kiowa campsite. While returning campers flocked to their tents, Michelle walked Denise to the tent she'd be staying in, number eight. While there were supposed to be four girls assigned to the eighth tent, a clerical error placed the fourth camper into another campsite. It was inside tent number eight that Denise met fellow campers, nine-year-old Michelle Heather Gousset, and eight-year-old Lori Lee Farmer. The three girls became fast friends as they bonded. Now, I imagine these girls talking David Cassidy, the Partridge family, the Jackson Five. I imagine these girls singing and just giggling and just getting to know one another and getting their jitters out. <clears throat> the three girls, as I said, became fast friends. So while nine-year-old Michelle had been a Girl Scout since 1974 and attended, she had also attended camp like the year before. So she was the only one who knew what this whole setup was like. Um, while she was excited to be back at camp, um, it was said that before she left, she told her mother that she loved her and asked that she promised to look after her plants while she was gone. Michelle had quite the green thumb and as delicate and temperamental as they are, the African violet was her specialty she loved it. She coveted these plants. So she, you know, make sure her mom was going to take care of these plants because she was going to be gone for two weeks. Anything can go wrong with an African violet if you know African violets. Her father would recall that it seemed to him as though his little girl knew she wasn't going to return home. When she kissed them goodbye, he said it felt as though she knew. Like Denise, this was eight-year-old... Okay, so hold on. Yeah, she... So like Denise... This was eight-year-old Lori's first time, like, away from home for an extended amount of time. Two weeks. Huh. Lori, the youngest camper at Girl Scouts camp, was a bright little girl who had been advanced a grade in school. That particular summer, Lori couldn't choose between... She couldn't decide between attending a camp at her, like, her local YMCA or the Girl Scout camp. Ultimately, Lori's mother signed her up for the first session of Girl Scout camp at Camp Scott. The Farmer family also planned to show up the first Saturday after camp began to celebrate 
Lori's birthday with her as she was about to turn nine. Also, let's go back to Den- uh, let's go back to Michelle real quick. Mm. The day after the girls left for camp was her parents' wedding anniversary. Did not add that in the script. And now, ten-year-old Denise was five years older than her little sister, and she doted on both her sister and her mother. Now, of course, her dad was in the picture too, but she was like a girl's girl. So she really did not want to be away from her mother and her little sister. Doris was an exceptional student as well. She was looking forward to attending the magnet school that she'd been accepted into that fall. She was apprehensive about going, but Denise's mother told her that if at any time while she was away, she felt like she couldn't stand being away from home any longer, she could just call and her parents would come and pick her up. But to look at going away as an adventure and also a way to build independence. As the girls settled in, the quiet trio was said to have been having fun inside of their tent. After dinner, as nightfall began, a storm rolled in, forcing the campers to hunker down inside their tents. Rain pelted the platform tents nestled in the forest. The girls' flashlights in hand lay in in their cots. The girls lay in their cots and wrote letters home. Eight-year-old Lori wrote, Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters right now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. Michelle wrote, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I'm fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. And finally, Denise wrote, Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Michelle, and Lori. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see you and Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Throughout the night, strange events transpired. At the Comanche unit, a counselor reported seeing a dim light in the woods around the perimeter of the camp. The counselor knew that no one was supposed to be in that area of the camp and directed her flashlight towards the dimly illuminated light in the woods. Her flashlight in the wood, the flashlight in the woods cut off as the counselor scanned the wooded area. She, in turn, turned her flashlight off and waited a few moments later. The light in the woods turned on again and began moving northwest towards the Kiowa unit.
Around 1.30 a.m., camp counselor Carla Wilhite was awakened by a strange, intermittent, guttural moaning and noises she couldn't place. She'd later describe them as sounding like a cross between a frog and a bullhorn. It was low and guttural. It wasn't languished. It didn't sound like any animal she'd ever heard. My mind automatically meant to the 7 minute 23 second mark of November Rain by Guns N' Roses. Use your illusions one. If you know, you know. Carla grabbed her flashlight and decided to investigate. Unable to locate the source of the, partic- of the peculiar noises, she walked the tents, noting that the area was quiet and nothing seemed out of order. She returned to her own tent and fell asleep. At about 2 a.m., a flashlight beam appeared in the Kiowa unit. It would come and go from one side of the camp to the other. Tent flaps were taken off hook screws, eyeglasses, cases, and purses stolen from their tents as the counselor slept on the other side of the campsite. A camper in Tent 7 was startled awake by a flashlight beaming in her face momentarily before the person exited the tent and moved towards the rear of Tent Number 8. At 3 a.m., A camper in Quapaw unit heard a little girl crying for her mama and thought it sounded like Lori, who had once had a difficult time at an overnight camping trip. Wanting to beat the other... Okay, so then three hours later, 6 a.m. Wanting to beat the other staff to the shower and take advantage of the hot water, Carla Wilhelt had set her alarm for 6 a.m. She gathered her toiletries and headed towards the showers. The sun was just beginning to peek through the rain-glistening canopies of trees as she began walking towards the path. As she walked out of the corner of her eye on the opposite side of the fork of the road, Carla spotted something lying on the side of the road. Recognizing the objects as sleeping bags, she initially thought they were stray items and luggage that were dropped off late or like sleep, sleeping bags that came off of the delivery truck. So she walked over to them and that was when she saw the body of Denise Milner laying partially covered by a sleeping bag, but obviously deceased a few feet away from the other two. Befuddled. The staff who had been immediately notified couldn't figure out how Denise could have ended up outside of her tent dead on the side of the road. That was when they realized that Michelle and Lori were missing. The staff picked up the sleeping bags that were in close proximity to Denise's body. Feeling the weight of the bags when they picked when they were picked up and also when they touched the lower outside part of the sleeping bags it was determined that Lori and michelle were also deceased staff acted immediately calling for emergency assistance at the camp letting them know that there were three dead children and their causes of death were unknown at 7 30 a.m 
OSBI, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and agents from Tahlequah and Tulsa arrived and discreetly began conducting their investigation. You see, we had to keep this quiet because officially this was the first day of camp. At 7.30 in the morning, we've just found these babies, you know, these three campers' bodies. And now that we've notified emergency responders, we've also notified headquarters and Tulsa. And we've been told not to mention this to any of the children as they are going to dispatch buses to the camp to come pick up everyone and get them off of the campsite discreetly without getting you know starting an an uproar and also notifying the parents of the deceased children as well as the parents in general letting them know that hey you guys I know you guys just dropped your kids off yesterday so that they could start a two-week session of camp with us but we've had an incident at camp and now you have to come pick up your children so investigators would say that the entire scene was quiet everyone was speaking in hushed tones and whispers the hushed tones and quietness obviously as i said before was necessary as the campers were not aware of the deaths instead they were instructed to pack their belongings as they awaited the buses to take them back to headquarters in tulsa while higher ups at the girl scout headquarters consulted their attorneys first Secondly, the insurance. They then informed the farmers, Gousses, and Milner families of their daughter's deaths. But they were told that it was like an accident. They were very vague. They did not say that they did not say murder. The other camper parents were instructed to pick up their children at Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa at X time. Before the parents of all of these campers could leave their homes, news of the murders actually being murders broke. And so this is where I'm going to take you visualize this scene if you are old enough to remember Columbine. When Columbine happened, there is one moment where the news crew is interviewing the students as they are coming out of the school. And there's one young lady. Hold on, I need to take a sip of my clearly Canadian because I'm talking about some 1999 shit real quick. Seriously, you guys, I found clearly Canadian at the grocery store last night or this week. And I've I've just been so happy. Vestige of my youth. Anywho, they interview a young lady who has managed to get out of the library unhurt, unharmed. And she's telling the news that when the young men entered the library, specifically, they shot an African-American young uh, male and killed him. Now. The parents of the students of Columbine were instructed to pick up their children or rally at a Girl Scout shelter nearby 
in town that was like you know in the safe zone and that you know your children will be there and the cameras go over to the girl scout uh shelter and while they're there you see an african-american father looking for his son and you know if you're watching this and you you know you know the demographics of the school or you know you've peeped the demographics of the school you know that this is a predominantly white high school so the odds are that this man is looking for his child and his child is in fact the child that was murdered and the young lady back at the high school has already told the viewers as this was unfolding that this person was dead the dad doesn't know but we the viewers know okay so i kind of equated that to this when i was reading this so the parents of the remaining 127 campers don't know that their children are safe so they all show up to tulsa to the to the headquarters prepared for the worst thinking that their children one you know that their child has been murdered unbeknownst to them their children are all safe and the parents have already been informed that their daughters have been found dead they just don't know that their children have been murdered until police notification in person as well as the news covering this and breaking this so basically this is one of those times where i feel like the media did that thing where they jumped the fucking gun and they didn't give anybody the opportunity to properly inform the family the families prior to breaking the story but also shame on the girl scouts even though at the time they may not have known that it was a murder they knew that it was suspicious because there's three girl there's three campers from one tent all found dead so perhaps maybe you should say there was some suspicious shit that has potentially transpired but that is just me any who so huh at Camp Scott, investigators were awestruck and heartbroken at the tiny bodies crumpled at the bottoms of their sleeping bags. So initially, they walk up on these sleeping bags and it's like, aren't these empty? That's how small these girls were. Also, these children, the way that I also visualize this would be that they were transported, obviously, inside of their sleeping bags when it comes to Lori and Michelle and that when transporting them from their tent he had already the, the perpetrator had already murdered had raped and murdered Lori and Michelle inside of that tent when he moved their bodies he slung the sleeping bags over his shoulder similarly to like the imagery that we have of santa claus with his sack of goodies 
I know this because I have a Christmas sack and that's how we transport gifts from household to household during the Christmas season. And yeah. So how you would sling a sack over your shoulder because the girls were deceased, they just settled down to the bottoms of the sleeping bags and that's where they were <clears throat> because they were so small. You had to unzip quite deeply, you know, pr pretty much all the way down and then unfold the sleeping bag in order to reveal these children who were also bound, gagged, you know, restrained, and then curled up in balls because of how they fell. So, they said that Lori had appeared to have just been sleeping with her flashlight between her legs. As I said before, the autopsy reports would show that she, Michelle, and Denise had been bound with duct tape. They also had cloth gags. They had been raped, sodomized, bludgeoned, and strangled to death. The inside of tent number eight painted a gruesome picture. The floor was covered in blood that the killer attempted to clean up with towels and mattresses. It is believed that because of how Lori and Michelle were found, again, as I said before, inside of their sleeping bags, the killer murdered them inside the tent and slung the sleeping bags over his shoulder like a Christmas sack. Each girl was so small, their little bodies crumpled to the bottom of the bags in such a way that it would have been easy to assume that they were empty. Meanwhile, Denise was dragged out of the tent to the path or carried out. She was either dragged or carried out of the tent to the path where she was murdered. The killer had left behind footprints and a flashlight on top of one of the girls. Well, it was like partial, like it was missing some pieces, but peep it. With the remaining campers safe with their families, the camp shut down effective immediately, never to open again, never, ever, 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 ever. A farmer who lived nearby the camp was questioned. Although he was found to have had nothing to do with the murders, the media published his picture and name, so they doxed the shit out of him, and subsequently, he dealt with unnecessary harassment. Also, I just realized that, like, we literally went from like reading letters to jumping into these girls were found murder and i never hit you with a dumpster juice alert but i'm about to officials were on the hunt for a killer and had vast terrain to cover so there was a group of search dogs that were brought in and they were called the wonder dogs the wonder dogs were brought in and basically like they had tried to promise and assure the people of Oklahoma. Sorry, drop that stick for that uh good old uh como se dice cowbell. We say cowbell. Okay. So here's a quick one. I need to do a quick Google to see what order these guys got murked. But the Wonder Dogs were brought in to basically assist in the search. And because you are in Cherokee, you're basically in Cherokee territory. Um, 
hold on a second, 1977. We're just gonna do like a whole little quick little Google, okay? So they were brought in and it said that the Wonder Dogs were cursed by a medicine man, a local medicine man. See, and I can't even find what I'm looking for right now, but know that this is real. I couldn't make this up. He basically cursed the dogs and said that they were all going to die. And I know that I read somewhere that the Wonder Dogs met their demises. The first one within the first 24 hours. And they were going to say that that, the cause of death was probably like heat prostration. Yeah, that happened. Um, The thing is that the person that they had in mind for their search was a local... He was almost like a local celebrity, okay? And he was also a part of the Cherokee Nation. And so they wanted to keep him safe. So that's what happened right there. And this is where the dumpster juice alert comes up. Two miles away from Camp Scott, their suspicions would be furthered. Inside the cave, a flashlight battery that actually corresponded with the flashlight that was found at the murder scene, eyeglasses from the camp, and photos of women would lead back to Jean Leroy Hart. Jean Leroy Hart was born November 27, 1943. Growing up near Camp Scott, the young Cherokee man had made a name for himself as a one-time high school football legend at Locust Grove High School, which if you recall when I was giving you the layout and geography of Camp Scott, Locust Grove was only two miles away. So as a boy... Jean Leroy Hart grew up playing in the forest around and probably in the camp as well. Knew it like the back of his hand, most likely, obviously. But by 1966, 23-year-old Jean had begun a life of violent crime when he was convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women he abducted from the parking lot of a Tulsa nightclub. Jean would subsequently be charged with those offenses, as well as four counts of burglary. Twice, Jean escaped incarceration, the last time being his escape from the Mays County Jail in 1973, where he remained on the run. It wasn't until 10 months after the girls were murdered that he was apprehended, like, basically inside Cherokee country. After following leads, investigators were able to talk a medicine man's wife into pointing out the location Jean was hiding out at. Running away through the woods and brush, investigators ran upon an old house after a slight chase with Jean he was taken in without incident he also didn't say shit um despite the heinous allegations 
Jean faced, many members of the Cherokee community rallied in support, going so far as to raise a substantial amount of money for his legal defense. While elders and higher-ups who were in support of Jean had hoped he would spend the funds to obtain, basically like they wanted him to get like a, a, white, a, a white lawyer, okay, like a prominent lawyer that was outside of the community uh gene decided that he would use the funds instead to hire young native american attorneys upon analysis of evidence that was found at the murder scene gene's hair matched hairs found in the duct tape that bound denise's hands when sperm was collected from the girls and examined, it was found to be to be most unusual in shape. Jean had had a vasectomy. The defense hoped that a sperm sample would prove that their client was a non-secretor and therefore incapable of raping and murdering the three children at Camp Scott the previous summer and, you know, obviously leaving a sample of DNA that would contain actual, you know, sperm. Hopes are great, but the fact is Gene's vasectomy was unsuccessful and his sample was an identical match to the samples recovered from the girls' rape kits. March 19th, 1979, the trial of Gene Hart began. So yes, today, 1979, the trial began. For two weeks, prosecutors and the defense went back and forth. The tension in the courtroom uh, were not geared towards Jean, though. Instead, the families of the victims, as the courtroom was highly pro the defense. On March 30th, 1979, Jean Leroy Hart was found not guilty for the gruesome murders of Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner. While the families were devastated by the miscarriage of justice, Jean still had 305 years left on his 308-year sentences for rape and burglary and was returned to an Oklahoma State Penitentiary to continue serving his sentence. On the evening of June 4, 1979, after working out in the yard, Jean is said to have gotten up and began running laps around the yard until suddenly he collapsed and died of a heart attack. Jean was 35 years old. So Wikipedia says this. Um, the family of like two of the families later sued the Magic Empire Council and its insurer for $5 million, alleging negligence. The civil trial included discussion of the threatening note that was left inside that donut box and the fact that tent number eight was 86 yards from the counselor's tent. In 1985, by a 9-3 to three vote, jurors decided in favor of Magic Empire. So basically, Girl Scouts forever. 
DNA testing in 1989 was conducted that showed three of the five probes matched Hart's DNA. Statistically, DNA from one in 7,700 Native Americans would obtain these results. In 2008, authorities conducted new DNA testing on stains found on a pillowcase, the results of which proved inconclusive because the samples were too deteriorated to obtain a DNA profile. In 2017, $30,000 in donations were raised by the sheriff in order to do a new DNA to do do blah, 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 to do new DNA tests using the latest advances in technology and testing. And as a legacy, Richard Gousset, the father of Michelle, went on to help the state legislature pass the Oklahoma Victims Bill of Rights. He also helped found the Oklahoma Crime Victims Compensation Board. Lori Farmer's mother, Sherry, founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, a support group. So, what had happened is this. <sighs> it was a series of... Okay, so first of all, I feel like that message was not a joke. It was obviously intentional. Um, we don't know... I mean, like, we know who it was, but we don't know who it was, is what this is getting at, because the jury found him not guilty. But what we do know is this. In April of 1977... Someone threatened to, or promised, someone promised, um, you know, murder, you know, the murder of three girls. The person who made this promise most likely also knew the schedule. Hear me out. If, for instance, you had been on the lam since 1973 and you had grown up two miles away from this camp and you were out there living off the land being you know you know on the run you observe the comings and goings of things around you you know that like clockwork if you've been on the lamb in that general area that two months before camp begins the camp counselors come out and do their training on site so you know that this is the time to sneak up and say something also who's to say that he himself wasn't like laying low on the campsite when it was inactive you know during the off season so there's that two months prior someone made a promise the promise was not taken seriously it was not handled or addressed appropriately 
Now, you've got three little girls who were put in tents 86, you know, yards away from the counselor's tent. It's kind of off in the cut. It's obscure. Apparently, the rest of the tents were closer um, together. Altogether, the first seven were way closer together and eight was kind of just off on its own okay so you've got this tent with three girls in it which just happens to be a coincidence i'm gonna hope you know that it you know it was that it was just a coincidence it was a clerical error you've got the number of campers in a tent that this person has promised to murder and this tent is away, far enough away from everybody else that this person is able to get in and get out. And if you don't think that this person didn't already stake out the proximity of the tent situation and having some privacy, you'd be a damn fool. So this person comes in during a storm when there's already natural noises outside everybody's you know heebie-jeebied out trying to you know adjust back to being in the wilds and just listening to nothing but the sounds of nature these girls are raped and murdered two within the tent one at the site where the girls bodies were finally found and I mean, okay, so I respect the Girl Scouts for being able to discreetly get the other 127 campers and staff off site without incident, but I do not respect how the council handled informing the parents of what happened to, you know, what happened to their children. We could mince words and we could sit here and say that, oh, well, the council didn't necessarily know that their children, the children were murdered. No, you're right. They did not. They, they might not have known this when they notified the parents. But what the council did know is that it's very fucking peculiar when three children from the same tent end up dead on the side of a fucking path. That's not normal. One, maybe she was a sleepwalker. Maybe she had an accident. Two, you cannot fucking rationalize. Three, you better fucking tell them that it was unusual events that occurred. Because the media got a hold of this shit before anybody could even pick up their children from Tulsa. And sent the parents of the other 127, you know, children into a, a fucking manic panic. You know, this is how you start fucking chaos. Is by reporting shit before you should be reporting shit. Dear Lord. I'm so glad that like journalism has allegedly gotten a little bit better when it comes to that. There, where the fuck is your journalistic integrity on that? Um, you know, it took ten months of dogged apprehension. Well, I've read that you know 
they always said that, you know, they were single-mindedly looking at Gene Hart as, you know, the person who perpetrated this crime. You're going to have your Gene Hart supporters who are going to steadfastly tell you that the wrong man went to trial for this, but he was found not guilty. And you will also have the other people who will tell you that it was a miscarriage of justice, that he was not found guilty of the murders of these children because all of the evidence, be it circumstantial or not, added up to a mountain of he did it. There was also a lot of bullshit behind the scenes between the sheriff's department, DA's office, campaigning, boosting for funds, illegal campaigning, people having to resign, new people having to come on board. There was a lot of politics that transpired before the trial even began. But either way you cut it, justice was still served because Gene Hart was still, you know, remanded and put back into custody so that he could continue to serve out you know, a 308-year sentence. So 305 years, he served three of that sentence, which you know nobody's going to live 308 years. So you know that this man is not going to get out. So you know, you know what I mean? And then ironically, he's only in there for, pardon me, a couple of months and then his heart gives out at the age of 35. Whew. So that is what had happened to the three campers at Camp Scott. I feel like it gives us the Ketty cabin murder vibes. Um, you know, I wish that ultimately the family had been able to receive full closure but hopefully they feel in their heart of hearts that at the end of the day, the right person had been apprehended and incarcerated and subsequently still died whilst incarcerated, even if it was only for a couple of months. <sighs> All right, you guys, that's it. Another episode will be here soon. Miss you all. Enjoy this beautiful spring weather. Don't forget to take your antihistamines as the trees begin to ejaculate all over us with this good stuff we call pollen. Here's that beautiful outro music. Again, I'm Kimberly. This is what had happened to True Crime Podcast. Talk to you soon.